All right. Well, welcome. I'm David Denon. I'm here today with two guests. Uh, Tyler, actually, I'm not quite sure how to say your name. Is it Pateo Tarpy? Pidio. Pidio. Okay. Tyler Pidio Tarpy. And uh, of course, Daniel Tarpy. And today we're going to be talking about fundamental reality, a complicated topic that was a little bit hard to, to nail down and delimit. But I'm going to let Daniel introduce more about that topic. He has a, a useful um, slide, I guess, that I think will be help a helpful way to begin. So why don't you take it away, Daniel? All right, here we go. So basically, when it comes down to uh, fundamental reality, there's the distinction is usually between idealism and materialism, which is now usually referred to as physicalism. This ideas that reality reduces to one type of thing, a substance or an entity. For idealism, it reduces to mind, consciousness, or something mind-related. Uh, for physicalism, it, re it reduces to material objects or entities, which has now been in increased to include things like energy, uh, spin, um, space-time continuum, so we're getting into like slightly non-physical elements uh, when we talk about modern physicalism. Uh, within this idea of reality reducing to one type of thing, of course, we have pluralism, which is reality reducing to two types of things. Uh, we have substance dualism, property dualism, the idea that reality can be either both mental and material, or that reality is one substance, but it has two different characteristics. And there are a couple of other kinds of ideas within this framework, such as informationalism and quantum field theory. But the main tension is between materialism and idealism. Then we have other, other positions that have reality reducing to a non-thing, a non-substance or a non-entity. Uh, this is like process ontology, uh, which is reality reduces to events, not, not to an entity, not to a being, not to matter, but to activity, a process of beingness, of becomingness. Uh, re relationalism is also similar to this. Reality reduces not to the relata, but to the relations between them. So the relation is what, what is fundamental, not the things that is related. Then we also have other positions where reality is irreducible. The holographic universe uh, says that in each piece, in each minute piece of the universe, it contains the entire universe. And therefore the universe cannot be reduced to something because the universe is one whole. This is similar to um, uh, the infinite or the loop where reality is an infinite loop of regression. You can never regress down to the beginning. Uh, we also have pragmatism, which we'll hear more about later on today, um, which, well, I guess what David will give us a new definition of pragmatism, but there is the logical positivism tradition that treats fundamental reality or ontology as not important or we are unable to know it, and therefore all we can access is the practical world, and that gives rise to pragmatism, where we 
deal with what we know and ignore fundamental realities. Okay, so this is basically an overview of the arguments in the fundamental reality topic. And David, maybe you're going to tell us a little bit more about uh, some of these positions, especially the the debate between physicalism and idealism. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's many different ways to begin. Um, one thing that occurred to me, kind of looking at your graph, um, and that is that the way that you maybe conceive, or the problem you start with for conceiving reality uh, makes a difference. So I feel like on the top part of your graph or your chart, most of those positions come out of thinking about the relation between mind and matter, taking that as the primary problem that you want to, that you feel like you need to understand in some way. So there's this mind matter or mind body split. There seems to be a difference between physical objects and bodies and mental things. And how can we explain that by reducing one to the other or saying that they're both fundamental in some way. But then at the bottom two levels, at least in part, some of those, I think some of the major areas of those two bottom levels, it's more, I feel like it's more related to the um, difference between life and non-life where you're trying to understand you know, what is the difference between living things and non-living things, or what is the relation between the living and the non-living? And does one of those reduce to the other? Like, is the universe kind of like an organism? Or how does living, do living processes come out of non-living processes? And that gives you a whole other kind of metaphysics or sense of what is fundamental. And I think pragmatism in general has been more you know, it really developed in response to Darwinism, especially. So it's much maybe more concerned with life, not with a not life, non-life dichotomy rather than the body mind or body uh, mind matter dichotomy. Although they've had stuff, pragmatists have had stuff to say about that too. Um, but I think really the physicalism idealism divide has come more well as Kind of the name suggest out of this apparent uh, difference, irre irreconcilable, irreconcilable difference between the um, the physical and the mental. Does that? Do you think that makes sense? Yeah, it's quite interesting when you break it down by like the motivations for these different positions. Uh, yeah, I totally agree that the the, the biggest the one that has gained the most traction is this conflict between physicalism and idealism because everything that we talk about everything that we see or understand is is based on consciousness that's the most fundamental most the most apparent thing that we have in the world is our consciousness and yet there's also this world of this physical world and there's some kind of protective shielding over nature in other words we're not living in a dream where things just appear and disappear out of reality Reality is objective in a way, and yet we are conscious. And that's why those two elements are the hardest or the most apparent, the, the need for us to be able to have a theory to explain those two things. But I do uh, also agree with you about pragmatism, how it takes a slightly different view. Maybe its view is not 
okay, there's these two big problems, like the hard problem of consciousness, but there's two big problems which we have matter and we have consciousness. We have to account for these two things. Uh, pragmatism maybe takes another position that says, how, how are we going to live? How are we going to get on in the world or how do we do anything? And yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you with this, the, the position. Like whatever you're going to do in life, you're going to apply a different, uh, a different measurement so all of us in everyday life are pragmatists. You know, if we're doing physics, we're gonna we're gonna be doing, you know, we're gonna be using a totally different fundamental than if we're like constructing, uh, if we're going fishing or if we're you know doing counseling. You know, it's a totally different world, and you use a totally different fundamental reality for each of those positions. And therefore, I, I do like that motivation. If you want to get on with life and uh, accomplish something, what is the best way to get to the, your end goals? Yeah. And we'll circle back, I think, to those issues later. And I think that is, I think you've touched on indeed why I and some people at least are attracted to pragmatism is that it's... Um, frames theories in terms of what helps us cope with life, cope with our environment and so on. Um, I do want to maybe look at the physicalism, idealism issue a little bit to begin with, because I think that's maybe the more common way that people think about fundamental reality. Is it mental? Is it physical? I think physicalism is has come to be the maybe default position, at least some version. There's many different versions of physicalism and materialism. These terms, there's a historical difference between materialism and physicalism. We'll probably be using them interchangeably. They've come to be basically interchangeable uh, these days. But physicalism or materialism has basically come to be the default position, I think, for many people, at least some version of it. And again, there's many different versions of it. What's in really, been really interesting to me recently is the resurgence of idealism. And I'd like to hear your, your, your guys' thoughts about this. Um, in the last several years, I don't know, 10 years or maybe more, there's been much more interest in ontological idealism. I can say why I think, where I think that has come from, and specifically, we're talking about a natural, I'm talking about a naturalistic version of idealism or ontological idealism. There have historically been many different kinds of idealisms. Often these have been um, connected with uh, religious ideas or a kind of theism where kind of the absolute mind ultimately is uh, the mind of God or you know, something of that nature naturalistic, modern, kind of the recent naturalistic ideal idealisms don't really take that approach. They posit that consciousness is fundamental in some way, but it's not someone, some deity's consciousness or some, I don't know, there's not really, they don't try to draw a connection with religion. So that's one interesting aspect of it. It comes more out of a scientific worldview. I think the recent idealisms came about trying to thinking about two problems. One is the hard problem of consciousness and solving or dissolving the hard problem of consciousness by saying consciousness is just fundamental. And then you avoid the supposed 
we'll say the supposed hard problem of consciousness. Um, and then the other one maybe is some issues in quantum mechanics having to do with the measurement, the so-called measurement problem, which, you know, in some versions of the measurement problem, there's a requirement for consciousness to get involved, to give a um, quantum mechanical system its specific properties. And so you can kind of solve that problem by saying consciousness is fundamental. I don't think, well, the question is, are these good enough reasons maybe for proposing ontological idealism? Are these actual real problems that are in solve, un, uh, can't be solved in another way? Or do we really need to propose a new kind of ontological idealism? I personally don't think these are, I think there's other good solutions to these problems. I don't think they're effectively solved by um, these new forms of idealism, but that of course is debatable. I can say more, maybe more about why I think that uh, the price to pay for idealism is too high and you don't get enough in return, so to speak. But do you guys have any thoughts about, I mean, have you been uh, following kind of these new um, idealists? Of course, Bernardo Kastrup is one of the most famous ones, fam kind of YouTube famous, and he's written a number of books. Donald Hoffman, another guy who does a lot of YouTube stuff and uh, published a lot of papers on this. Um, and there are some others in yeah. that. So I, I like... I like your breakdown of, of the motivations, like they're trying to escape the hard problem of consciousness. Um, but, I, but your point about um, this naturalistic ontology of idealism versus the, the more pantheistic version, because even, even with Kastrup's uh, argument, um, see, whenever anybody talks about idealism, unless you're talking about platonic forms, if you posit a being or consciousness as being fundamental, at some point you have to regress down to the ultimate being or the beginning being or the, the, the only being. So in Kastrup's example, he's, you know, we're all disassociated alters of one unified being, which is basically the same thing as God. So I, I, I see his idealism as exactly the same thing as, as idealism traditionally has been, which is there is some kind of, we are in the mind of God. We exist in the mind of God as some kind of, some kind of thoughts. His one in particular is that we are disassociated alters, which is kind of like conscious, God consciousness forgets itself and splits into, um, <laughs> disassociates itself into different realities, which I, I, I don't know why he chose this explanation because it doesn't sound good. Like it's of all the things you could say, it doesn't sound good. <laughs> Uh, but this yeah. is this is an idea that's been going on. I've heard it uh, since the psychedelic movement, this idea of ultimate consciousness being alone couldn't handle this this aloneness and therefore split itself into different personalities. Um, it's also similar to Alan Watts's idea of of God consciousness and then everybody being an element of this consciousness that intentionally forgets itself. But in Alan Watts' idea, it's more like we forget ourselves because God wants to have fun, not because he's disassociating because he can't handle the pressure. <laughs> but, <laughs> but this is, of course, ties in with, with uh, Tyler's position of panentheism and pantheism. Tyler, do you want to give us a little bit of a breakdown of those two things? 
Yeah, um, I'd say I'm definitely more on the panentheism side. Um, some background, I've uh, recently started joining the Catholic Church. Um, about a year ago, I, I came to Christianity and started going down that path. So I'm relatively new to ideas about God and uh, his nature and, and stuff like that. But what makes most sense to me at the moment is panentheism, which says that God exists outside of like outside of the universe, but the universe is contained within him, which is different from pantheism, which says that God just is the universe. Um, so in both cases, we are living inside of God, but under the, the belief that I think is more convincing, God isn't limited to the universe. Um, the universe is just a small part of him. And why do you think, I mean, why do you think panentheism is more convincing? I guess one question, maybe general question I have is what counts as like a good reason. So I'm coming at, at this as an outsider, right? So I don't know much about the arguments going on within the theism world. So what, do you have a sense of like what counts as a good argument for these different positions? What counts as evidence in this kind of debate? What makes you think panentheism is more, is a better, did I say the right one? Panentheism, panentheism is the yeah. <laughs> um, right option rather than others. Yeah, so I guess it, it does get to like what convinced me of theism in the first place. And then like, depending on what that is, what that reason is for different people, they might go from there to more specific theistic views. But for me, it was, there's a lot that, um, a lot of answers to, like, to questions about reality, about consciousness, ethics, all, the, all these philosophical questions that were answered for me in such a way that led to God that convinced me that God is beyond the universe. And can't, he can't be contained by the universe to do that would kind of limit his um, infiniteness. So answers to questions like who created the universe um, are best explained to me under a system where it says God, you know, exists outside of the universe and created it with, kind of within himself. But if God is just the universe, that it makes it more confusing, like the universe created itself then. And it seems like there, there's a lot about the universe because the universe I'm defining as the things we observe, reality. Um, and there, there are other ways to define the universe, which might make some people lean more towards pantheism. But if the universe is just what we observe and we have questions about what we observe that can't be explained without appealing to a higher power, then it seems to me that that higher power would not be contained by the universe. It would have to be, exist outside. It. it would have to give the things we observe their nature in order to, I guess, be more fundamental than them. So if you like... We, we see things in the world, things that seem to be material or objective. So given that panentheism is an idealist ontology, are, is all the things that we see, is this kind of something like a thought in the mind of God? And like, like a dream, like God's having a dream and like, you know, a tree 
is a, an image that God's mind conjures up. And what is the difference between us and these images? So us as like, let's say we ourselves, or we have a soul or we are whatever, we are a person and a tree. Are we different from a tree? And is this tree fundamentally a, something like a thought, God thought? Um, so I guess the, the analogy is like dream. So, okay, this is a problem with, with talking about God. All, everything we say about God is a symbol fundamentally because, you know, our, our language is contained in the universe. If God exists outside of the universe, we can't use the language. to We don't have the language to describe him. So we're saying reality is something like a dream to God. Then we're, we're using our own experience of dreams. And the reason I wouldn't like that sort of analogy is because dreams are something we wake up from. And that, I guess, has the the connotation that like, well, maybe we just, we're not going to exist at some point. Like this is just fragmentary or, you know, we exist for now, but then the next day God will wake up and his reality will be more real and we won't have existed at all. But uh, no, I think we can only come from the position of we are real. We have to like, I agree with Descartes that that's the first thing we know. Um, but I think this, the second thing we know is that, there is other things as well. And I take the, maybe this is pragmatist view that like common sense says, you, you know, you accept what you experience, but it, it doesn't, doesn't serve any purpose to be overly skeptical. Um, so yeah, I, I think we exist. I think uh, God exists and created us to exist permanently. Um, so I wouldn't use the language of dreams, but there is, Certainly the, the idea, since, since I'm not saying like the universe exists out here, God exists over here. I think there's a different term for that. We're completely separate. Um, we exist inside of God in some sense. So God keeps the universe in existence. He, he is the source of it and he is continually keeping it in existence. Okay, so we're, we're fundamental. Yeah. And the tree, it, it's tree is, well, I mean, I guess in a sense, we're not totally fundamental in that we're dependent on God, but we're fundamental in that we go all the way down to wherever God is, the fundamental ground of all being. Uh, but the tree doesn't. The tree is some kind of outcropping of God's consciousness. Well, I don't or like the, the material world, let's say the material world is some kind of outcropping of some kind of underlying consciousness. Yes, but but so are we. So I, I, I'm not sure if we should separate ourselves from the rest of creation in that way. Like we we, we separate ourselves because oh. we are the one doing the separating like we are we are conscious of ourselves, but because we're also conscious of the rest of creation. I think we should also assume that that exists at the same level of reality. But you don't, you wouldn't agree with Castrop's idea of idealism where there is some kind of unitary consciousness that fragments into different selves. No. Um, and to be fair, I, I don't know much about modern philosophy. I mean, I'm still reading relatively old works um, for school and, and on my own. 
Um, so I, I didn't read cats up, but I don't know. I don't think, I think the idea of God has to be something that is completely unified. Otherwise it, it doesn't serve the purpose of God. So if, if God is disassociating himself, that is a lot of problems. That's like giving him, you know, human flaws. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I think, yeah, we should, uh, maybe try to be clear about dissociation as much as it's possible to, and it might relate. I mean, maybe Tyler will see something in there relevant. I don't know, but I think the dissociation, well, it's not like an absolute, I mean, it's a little bit unclear exactly uh, on Kastrup's accounting, why it would happen and exactly how it happens. But there's some kind of a boundary set up between, um, you know, the universal consciousness and individual private consciousnesses. They still kind of interact in a sense. There's still, um, you know, ideas, for example, can influence each other between universal consciousness and individual private consciousnesses. So it's not like an absolute break exactly. It's um, more of like a the creation of a space where one part of it doesn't know what the other part of it is doing, but it's still kind of the same substance, I guess. I'm not quite sure if he sees yeah, see it as a substance, but that is interesting because I it, it brings up another point about how a lot of the things, a lot of the arguments that we have, or a lot of the theories that people put forth, there's a lot of overlap, and it's just it's just like a rhetorical difference. So this idea of disassociated alters is it well just those words are negative but but there is a it, it's it's a very small or rhetorical difference between the you know the other concept where God is a sun and we are the rays of the sun hmm. uh, or you know God is the ocean and we are the droplet like this kind of concept um, so for a lot of a, a lot of mystical idealism. Like I mentioned, Alan Watts, and uh, um, from uh, more, more from the Western tradition, although Alan Watts kind of merges Eastern and Western idealism. But there is this idea that there is this oneness, this one consciousness, and then we are pieces of this consciousness. But like you said, delineated, like there's some kind of boundary. Um, using the word disassociated is just very it just has a negative connotation. But it could be that many of the things that we are talking about are, are we're we might be talking about the same thing. Like even the distinction between panentheism and pantheism, which is God is outside the universe, but contains the universe versus pantheism, which is God is the universe. That, that might be the same thing. It's just that we might not know what the universe means. What the universe actually is might be that thing that is bigger, which includes God and the universe. So for many of the things that we like, and this is the same problem I have with physicalism and idealism, because at some point, physicalism starts to incorporate a, a lot of these non-physical or non-material properties, um, like information. How is like the word information, how is that like uh, at some point, the distinction between information and consciousness is, is there's a line is very thin and the distinction between material world, matter, energy, and information is also getting thin. At some point, it seems that we might be talking about the same thing, but she's using different words, mm -hmm. which is my uh, one of my major problems with physicalism. 
is that they keep on incorporating non-physical elements and then, but still retaining the term physicalism. Right. Yeah. I think that's, um, yeah, a bit of a, a problem. Um, I don't know if it can be, if, if it's something that can be fixed by changing words and stuff, but yeah, there is a definite problem. I mean, physicalism, <clears throat> uh, I do want to still return to panentheism, but, um, maybe we can weave that in because I was going to say before, maybe I say something about physicalism, I think if I was more drawn to theistic ideas, I would probably tend towards something like panentheism also. And the reason is that experience and knowledge are always, in my view, relational. So we can't understand something until we can put it into a relation. If there's only one thing or one relation, it doesn't really um, count as... Uh, experience. It's like the deep sea fish, right? That never leaves water. It only, you know, does it really experience water? You could say probably not. It's just the thing that it takes for granted. Um, and in, when we think about the universe, I think one reason that it's so hard to understand the universe and grapple with that question, like why did, you know, how did something come from nothing and all of that, because we don't have anything to compare it to, right? There's nothing out, there's no other universe that we know of that we can compare it to. So we can look at our galaxy and we can compare it to other galaxies in different states of formation or dissolution, whatever. And we can get a sense of like, what is a galaxy? But just having knowledge or experience of one universe doesn't really, you know, it doesn't solve very much. You know, we can't solve all the questions we might want to ask with experience of just one universe. So you would want to, suppose that there are other universes out there and then thus there might be some overarching kind of structure, God, whatever, to contain those many universes. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense to, sense to you, Tyler? Yeah. Um, that's a, the deep sea fish example. That's very helpful. Uh, and that's a good point as well. Um, I'm trying to think, like, does it, So in, is that how, I guess, is that how you would answer the, the question of what is most fundamental? I, and this is a, a question about pragmatism. If, I don't know if you want to move the conversation on, but um, this question I have, is that how you think of what is most fundamental that we, we just can't answer it because what is most fundamental is the thing we most take, take for granted. It's just something we can't compare and therefore can't experience. I think that's one way to look at the question of what is most fundamental. Um, I think there's a few ways to answer this from a pragmatist perspective, maybe. Um, yeah, one is that it's just what we have to take for granted, what we have to assume for any particular kind of inquiry. I mean, pragmatists are really interested in inquiry and problem solving and what is most general or what is most universal or what is fundamental in that sense is what is most useful across any possible inquiry that you would want to do. So sometimes we they talk about the canons of logic. So when there's a sense in which logic is the most fundamental thing and logic in the order, the old kind of old fashioned order of the sciences, logic was fundamental because that's where you got this concept of relation. And before you get 
until you get relation, you can't really know anything about anything, right? But once you have relation, um, you know, you can get to number and, you know, space and time and all these things. Um, so there's a sense in which logic can be taken as fundamental because those are the tools, you know, our most general tools for uh, dealing with any particular problem that we have, right? So that's one, maybe one answer to what is most fundamental for pragmatism. I think there's a more maybe materialistic answer that you could also give, which is like what kind of thing kind of persists throughout all possible experiences or all possible um, inquiries. And so in that sense, you might look at, you know, the atomic or subatomic level or something like that, where you have these particles that persist through all situations. The situations vary, but there's always this level of however far you want to go, quarks or whatever. And it's an interesting question whether, you know, how fundamental you can get going in that direction. I think for the pragmatist, it's always limited by the problem that you're trying to solve. If you're trying to solve a social problem, those particles are there, but you don't really need to take account for them, right? In most contexts. I mean, maybe if it's a, you know, a pollution problem involving, you know, molecules and stuff, you would need to uh, consider yeah. that. But yeah, I don't know if you want to, guys want to <laughs> respond to, to those ideas. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. That's also the same problem I have with pragmatism. I mean, like I mentioned, if we're all pragmatists in practice, uh, but pragmatism always assumes, you know, some kind of world out there that takes a world, let's say, takes it for granted. So my issue with people who say they're pragmatists is that they're just, they're just not, they're just not acknowledging their foundation. So they're taking a world for granted. So for instance, the fish in the, in the sea or the particles, they're taking this, this idea for granted. Maybe, and it's, and some of them, like for instance, Peterson, I think he's, he has a, he has a kind of pragmatist uh, ontology, but he's, I think quite obviously leaning to idealism. So I think what his, like for people who say they're pragmatists in in life, in many different fields, you will apply different standards to different problems that you have, but you will always have some kind of assumption of some kind of world out there. And that's the question that metaphysics wants to know. Like, okay, you're a pragmatist and yeah, you will apply different standards to different problems, but I want to know what it is that you are, what is hidden underneath that foundation that you have, that maybe it's not acknowledged or you know, uh, detailed or explained, but it usually it will be some kind of leaning to idealism or leaning to realism or materialism. So the idea of the fish, you know, there's just takes for granted. There's something out there, but that something out there is not the fish. The fish knows that thing is not the, not itself. Right. So it's not, so it's, let's just assume the fish knows that obviously if the fish was an idealist. It would just think it is everything. You know, it's it's God moving around in the darkness, um, and the darkness is part of it. Uh, so, the the experience will be completely different, different pragmatists based on what their underlying assumptions are. So, you might be a pragmatist and doing the same thing as another pragmatist, but you your pragmatism, you, your fish might be swimming around thinking, okay, I'm a fish, 
that's the world out there, the world as is. And the other fish is thinking, I'm everything. I'm the fish and this is everything. And this is all me. Um, so this experience would be very different, even though the behavior might be the same. Yeah. So um, part of that, I think the most pragmatists would, I mean, part of what you said about this search for what is, you know, true reality as opposed to just one or another level of appearance, I think many pragmatists, perhaps all, I'm not quite, I wouldn't want to say all, but many that I am familiar with at least would reject that as a legitimate pursuit. I mean, Richard Rorty, who I don't exactly agree with on um, several things, but I think he's right, basically right about that there's no kind of legitimate abstract pursuit of the truth per se. We can't question everything all the time, right? We have to take things for granted. It's always limited to, you know, we may not be able to see it, of course, at any given moment, but we're always limited by our culture, by our circumstances, by the set of problems we have to deal with. We don't really pursue total, a totally abstract um, kind of truth. So I think that's not a, yeah, it's just a question that doesn't really come up as a matter within pragmatism. There's not a sense of this is what's really true. We look for what, um, because that's not something you can know. You can use that as a lim ideal kind of limiting, limiting uh, conception. I was just listening to um, Carlo Rovelli, a quantum physicist who I admire and agree with in some ways, although I don't feel very knowledgeable about that, but he was talking about this too, that there is no, it doesn't make sense to say what is the um, fundamental truth of the universe. Um, you can get many, many different perspectives on it and you can, um, you know, I'm kind of twisting his explanation a bit to fit kind of the pragmatist view, but you, know, you can get many different um, perspectives on it. You can refine your methodology so that it is more successful you know each next time that you try to solve a problem that you try to do something that you know hasn't been working so we can make things make our actions more and more successful that doesn't mean that we're that we have a better knowledge necessarily of um you know what is very fundamentally true in an abstract way yeah, so I, I, I agree with that. It's like similar to, to Kant's uh, nomena and phenomena realities. So we we understand or we can only understand the phenomenal world. We can't access the nominal world. And therefore, whatever we say about the nominal world is just conjecture. Um, but the, the point from the metaphysician that they would say to the pragmatist is that regardless of whether you can access fundamental reality, which by the way, is its own ontology saying that you can't access fundamental reality is an ontology. So you, uh, the pragmatist is already sneaking in an ontology. Well, it's saying, I think worldview. that there is no, that con they're saying, I think more that that concept isn't a valid or useful concept. So yeah, which is could still be ontological, is, but yeah. This is the same argument people had with the logical positivists who are like, Either it's not a it's not a necessary argument, or even if it is an argument, it's not it has no, is known it's it's not important. What's important is the world that you can access. 
but if you are if you if your theory is that there is a world you can access and a world you cannot access that already is a kind of ontology even though yeah, the claim is not... that there's rejection of ontology yeah i don't think it's claiming that there's a world you can't access um it's saying that we can posit an ideal so one way to think about fundamental like what is the absolute truth would be what is this thing from an infinite number of perspectives that's obviously not something you can attain but it is something that you can progress toward so you can never have an infinite number of perspectives on the universe but you can have more and more perspectives on it so there's a sense in which you know so it depends on uh, how real you want to see those infinite number of perspectives i would say it's not real it's a symbol that we use maybe to guide our behavior it doesn't um it's not something that exists per se um but we can you know add perspectives we can look at things in different ways we can apply new techniques and so on um i don't know if that successfully yeah. answers your I challenge mean, I, but... I think like <laughs> you know peterson's statements that everybody everybody is religious or everybody believes in god um <laughs> To me, I think it's like everybody has a metaphysics, <clears throat> um, even if it's not acknowledged. And I guess the question is, like we mentioned in the beginning about finding um, the motivations. Like, what are the motivations? Like, is it distinguishing between re uh, materialism and the consciousness and matter? Is it finding what is helpful to achieve a goal? I think uh, trying to figure out these motivations is it sheds a lot of light on these different positions. Um, and I'd be curious to know, if, if, like, I know uh, you, you asked Tyler, but Tyler, we didn't quite hear exactly what some of your motivations are. And also you, David, like for your position, I'm curious about what is the motivation for pragmatism? Like, uh, I mean, I guess, of course, there's logical motivations. Um, but as I see it, I, I think consciousness is driven by motivations and the motivations are pre pre rational like you mentioned before a while ago when we first started talking about these topics about um the two you know two different types of people the mystical people and the you know, that was a really interesting distinction um and i think that that might tie into why people are drawn to idealism or, or physicalism or the different types of idealism you know panentheism or some other kind of idealism Sure. Um, do you want to maybe start, Tyler, um, with some of your motivations? Yeah, and I think I can I can tie it into um, a question I have about pragmatism as well. Uh, a different line of thought from where Da was um, uh, asking about it. So for me, like the 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 main reason I came to Christianity was because it answered my questions about ethics. Why? Because I, I had always accepted that there was an objective right and wrong. And, you know, eventually I just realized I don't have a foundation for that belief. And Christianity offered uh, a foundation. And that was the main reason. Um, from there, 
I'd say I, I realized that, you know, there's all sorts of different questions I had. How does something come from nothing? Where do not only moral judgments, but aesthetic judgments come from? How do we have uh, this notion of objective reality and our ability to access it? Why should we assume that like a material world would give um, yeah, like emerging conscious beings the ability to understand it accurately? And so a lot of different questions like that. And altogether, it just it became a story that was like convincing for all these different reasons. And that's that's not even um, addressing the like the main story of of Christianity, which is um, redemption from sin and forgiveness. Um, that's obviously the most appealing part for me. But just the, the on the more intellectual side, um, there were there were philosophical reasons. And this gets to my question about pragmatism, because you you mentioned that pragmatists are more concerned with, like, you you want to know as much about reality as you need to solve particular problems. But for me, Christianity was so appealing because it was a holistic picture that answered all sorts of different problems. I'm wondering if pragmatists ever come up with something like that, where they realize, like, okay, we have all these different problems, but when I look to, to reality from these, like you said, from these many different perspectives or at many different depths, I end up seeing the same pattern. Wouldn't like, wouldn't a pragmatist then say, okay, there must be something fundamental that is true from all these different perspectives. And that is the thing I can call, you know, maybe not most fundamental reality. Like you said, we're, we're continually striving for that perfect vision of ultimate reality that we can never achieve. I think Christians are say the same thing. But there, we pragmatists would then have to acknowledge that there is a fundamental reality that they are striving for. I think, um, yeah, there is a sense in which, so what you're talking about, I think the pragmatist would tend to call logic. So we look for patterns that, for example, patterns of behavior, if you're thinking about science or other kinds of problem solving, you're looking for patterns of action that will most in most cases lead to successful outcomes. And in a sense, that's what's most real. And that's why in one way you can think of as, uh, think of logic as being fundamental reality, because that's where we kind of store our um, kind of most general set of kind of rules for behavior. I think the religious connection is really interesting because I would maybe tend to take a similar view to Jordan Peterson. I mean, I'm not religious in the way that he is. He's an interesting mix of kind of different things. Um, but, you know, he's talked about myths and religious stories as a way of kind of encoding these patterns of behavior that have proved to be successful over time and a way of transmitting these patterns of behavior over time. And so there, um, I mean, one way to think about that maybe is archetypes, which is um, kind of the Jungian understanding of that. <clears throat> but I think it's a, yeah, a similar thing. And I think for the pragmatists, they, I mean, Dewey had a kind of religious element to him, James as well. But in general, they did not see themselves as kind of in the religious tradition, but I think there is that link there of trying to find 
successful ways of being in the world. And the modern way of looking at that might be um, science and logic. And there's an important, very important caveat here, but an important um, kind of way of codifying our successful behaviors is through science, scientific methodology, and logic, but those are not the only important things. Um, the religious aspect is interesting as well because at least some pragmatists are very explicit that science cannot give you purposes. So science can help you attain, you know, science or logic are kind of the um, rules to follow to the best that we know presently for attaining this or that kind of purpose, but it can't tell you what those purposes are. And this is one way that religion might come in. Um, I don't think the pragmatists tended not to return to kind of the traditional religions in order to look for purposes. They looked more to um, society and social institutions and more kind of secular ideals. But um, there, there is a kind of connection there with, I think, the development of religion and what pragmatists have been trying to do. Looked at from a certain perspective. I don't know if theologians would necessarily agree with that kind of interpretation of religious stories and religious myths, but... Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how much overlap there is between certain pragmatists, like, like if we could count Peterson as a pragmatist or William James or these guys, if the, the overlap between their position and, you know, an idealist position and the overlap between like a modern fiscalist position, a modern fiscalist who, who uh, takes into account quantum science and all its interesting non-material positions. Um, It'd be interesting to see how much overlap there really is going on or how different or incompatible these views are. Yeah, I think for, I mean, one way for me that I sometimes explain pragmatism and uh, it's not a way that I think would be, be endorsed by many pragmatists, but it kind of gets you in the general area is that pragmatism is a combination of non-reductive materialism and epistemological idealism or Kantian, the Kantian kind of idealism. So it does have a kind of materialist, I mean, it's naturalistic. So, and naturalism doesn't necessarily imply this or that kind of materialism. Um, but I think just as a matter of historical um, fact, or just in a practical sense, um, pragmatists have tended to be non-reductive materialists in the sense that they don't think the atomic level, that everything is reducible to some low level they think you know experience is a real thing you have to take in a sense you have to take the common sense world for granted what has um, been called the manifest image and you use science to explain and refine kind of the manifest image or the common sense world um, but it's not the fact that the common sense world is reducible to physics or something else um, yeah so there's also this idealist aspect to pragmatism. So it's not like a strict kind of reductive materialism. That makes sense. <laughs> well, interesting to, to hear your um, motivations, Tyler. And uh, yeah, I'm wondering if you could, if there's a way to boil down those motivations uh, to like more first principles, like understand the idea of, of ethics, like the ethical argument. Um, 
but the the ethical argument already takes a lot of things for granted like it takes a world for granted it takes humans for granted um it's like so like my position in in, in philosophy is i think that uh whatever we desire consciousness desires something and that is the foundation of, of philosophy so philosophers like to talk about logic and everything else but i think they're kind of missing the point they're actually what is driving philosophy is not logic it's 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 something like desire um and what is the most fundamental desire what is what is it that made the first philosopher wake up and think like oh i need to i need to ask this question um what are those desires and that's what i consider to be the the driving motivations and if you build off from there, you find there's some people who are more prone to want to, to answer um, with a physicalist interpretation or idealist interpretation. And so this is where I, I see if I will have conflict or, or difference with other views. If you boil it down to the fundamentals, and that's where the, the, the conflict lies. So, for instance, I think a very fundamental notion is the idea of the self. So for me, <laughs> from my position, obviously, uh, I want to be real and I want those that I care about to be real too. I want, I want consciousness to go all the way down. This, of course, is a different position than Sam Harris, which would he, his starting position is that uh, perhaps that self isn't, is just an illusion, right? So that's, uh, I, that's not his, his motivation is obviously not that he wants to be real, it might be something else like, you know, to be at peace or to find release or something. Um, so at this very fundamental level, you're going to have a conflict. And then on top of that, you're going to build a structure of philosophy and ideas and logic. And once the structure is built, it's hard to know exactly what the difference is between the two different things. But when you boil it down to the fundamental, you realize, oh, that is where the distinction lies. And for me, those are the being real and not being alone are the two biggest issues. And I feel I, I, I see that this this thread of wanting to be real and wanting not to be alone in the universe goes through a lot of philosophy. Um, and of course, then, of course, there's the opposite people who take the opposite position um, who, who respond. I, I, perhaps they respond to this initial desire and then go in the opposite direction. Like, okay, we cannot, we have to accept that we're alone. Therefore, I'm gonna create an ontology of aloneness or oneness. Yeah, did you wanna, I maybe have a few things to say to that, but um, do you wanna respond to any of that, Tyler? The idea of kind of the self as a fundamental problem and the problem of aloneness? Well, I, I certainly agree with those fundamental desires um i've definitely it's it's hard to identify with philosophies and philosophers who seem to like promote like who 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 promote that the idea that they don't have free will or that they don't actually exist or that uh we can't know anything like it, it it's impossible to accept those philosophies because in order to accept those philosophies I have to be the one accepting them. I have to know what is right and wrong and know what is true and not true. I have to know that I exist and 
another. I can choose. So it's like they're self-defeating. Um, but I, I do think those, maybe not the desire to be real, because I, I guess I've never thought about that one so much. I've been taking it for granted, but uh, definitely the desire for connection is driving um, my attraction to Christianity and um, my, my philosophy that way. Um, connection, not not necessarily to others, certainly to others, like at, at a more, um, I guess, at a higher level. But I, I think at the most fundamental relation to things that are, you know, the three transcendentals, um, true truth, goodness, and beauty, want to be related to those in some way. Cause that that's where all value I see comes from. Um, so yeah, that, that's. You know, it's a very poor um, dissection of my my uh, underpinning psychology, but I guess I, I do agree that 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 is there. Oh, that's yeah, that's uh, interesting. You mentioned this, uh, so this Platonic uh, beauty and truth, um, or the good, the form of the good. Um, so this is also an interesting argument within idealism between being and form between so so for plato the highest reality is this thing called the good um whether the good is is identical with being a being like god or whether the good is some kind of platonic form is a separate issue but there's like if you can be an idealist dealist and you can have as your ultimate reality a kind of platonic form or you can have your ontology as a ultimate being so, for instance, God. Now, in this, uh, for Christianity in general, God, of course, is good. I mean, it's equatable. God and the good are the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. But there is a distinction between is ultimate reality beingness or is it form? And then, of course, you have process ontology, which which says ultimate reality is not beingness; it's becomingness, which is you know a, a slight variation of that. But I guess, Tyler, your position would be ultimate reality is being, but that being is the same as the platonic form of the good. Yeah, or, or the, the form of the good is contained within that being, uh, is, is part of that, that being's essence. Because um, I, I, that's what I originally believed before I came to Christianity. I, I believe in Plato's um, forms and kind of... The main reason that I eventually abandoned that idea is um, if if the forms are supposed to be more fundamental than us, than the self, and it's it's an ideal that the self strives toward, it doesn't make much sense to say that this form is lacking things that we possess, like consciousness, like identity, like being and existence. So. That kind of led to God, the uh, personal being, sort of God, who you know is the source of the, these qualities we possess, and we assume that they're they're good qualities because we can use them to strive for good things um, toward this form. So it'd be weird if the form itself couldn't, I guess, do the same. Uh, but I, I'm interested in what uh, David thinks about. Yeah, your your question about the, the fundamental psychological 
reason for philosophy. Fundamental psychological. Well, it's interesting um, in Daniel's answer as well, like um, pointing out the the self and the being alone, being connected. In a way, this gets us back to the the concept of relation and seeing the universe as um, or seeing objects as, uh, as as a nexus of relations or seeing everything as evolving or emerging out of relations. Um, I don't think, at least in my own philosophical views, I don't think I took the self necessarily as a fundamental problem. I think it is an interesting problem. I tend to take for granted that human society pre-exists any particular individual. So the problem then can be the relation of the individual to society. Um, but I think the self comes into being through interaction, through relation with the society that contains it, as well as the natural world and all that other stuff as well. Um, so yeah, I think the other kind of pre-exists the self is the, maybe one way to put that. So we're born into otherness and become selves. Uh, we can maybe return to that point. This, as far as other psychological motivations, I think I am kind of lacking in a sense of mystery. Me and Daniel have talked about this before. Um, I'm not a very, yeah, I've never been that attracted to kind of these ultimate mysteries. So I've always been maybe more pragmatically oriented. Um, there's a an American saying, which I'm sure you guys have heard. Um, uh, so the, the, the motto for the state of Missouri is, um, you know, show me. There's this idea of, you know, don't just tell me, don't just talk about it, but show me. And this is something, you know, one of my favorite writers is Zora Neale Hurston. And she used to say stuff like this too. Just, you can't just talk about it. You have been, you know, at some point you got to show me and I want to see things. I want to contact with stuff. I don't, um, you know, if something gets too, too abstract, too numinous, too, you know, ethereal, my inclination, my tendency is to want to bring it back down to something concrete. I always want to make things more and more concrete. Like, how can I act, make this into something that is handleable, is uh, that I can see and touch and smell? Um, yeah, and there's some, uh, I was reminded of that bit in Plato of the, the argument between the gods and the giants, and the giants are always trying to... Um, you know, say what is real? They're, what we can grab these rocks and stuff. These are the real things, and the gods are like, no, there's other. But I think you know, for me, I always want to look at what are the functions of abstraction. So there are abstract things, abstract ideas, but how do they actually function in concrete ways in human life? I think that's kind of my motivation. So I, I like bringing things down more to the human level. Like, how does it actually work for us in human lives? For people who are trying to survive and make a living and solve their problems and all of that. Kind of thing. I think that's more my um, motivation for 
feeling at home more with pragmatists than other kinds of philosophers, which, you know, like an idealist gets, for me, it feels like it's getting more and more and more abstract. And I don't know what you're talking about anymore when you're talking about absolute mind. I can't really, it's hard for me to concretize that, to make sense of that, to see, you know, how it functions. Um, and I guess there's a little bit of a problem with that in materialism where you get down to these subatomic particles. I mean, one of the problems with materialism, I think, historically has been, and Daniel brought this up earlier, is that we tend to, is the, are these subatomic, do these subatomic things really count as physical? Are we still talking about physical stuff? I think George Herbert Mead did a brilliant, brilliant job of showing us where our concept of the physical came from, and it's kind of the resistances of objects around us to our bodies. I mean, that's kind of the original concept of physical. It's stuff that resists us, that resists our activity, that kind of imposes on us. You know, it's hard. It's, you know, resists our movements, our body. And I think a lot of problem, well, some problems, I don't know a lot, but I think one of the problems in materialism is that you import that or export whatever that down to the subatomic level. And you're thinking of these things as actually physical in the same way that you think of the physical world as physical, as something that has a kind of resistant, a kind of little billiard balls and stuff. Um, but anyway, that's getting away a little bit away from my my motivation. But yeah. But uh, in the beginning, you you mentioned about um, society and the self as being birthed out of otherness, which I thought was really interesting because I I had the same concept. I mean, but it's not a, on a sociological level; it's a the ontological level about the idea of otherness and self, um, and the way that otherness or self comes out of otherness. Um, so, but I was still interested in the, in the motivations. Like, uh, I find it quite interesting, I guess, like if, I guess one way to think about it, like the mystical view, like if, even though it's very hard to concretize it, like to make it tangible, I guess in some way you could say, well, would it matter if, let's say, you woke up tomorrow and you, you know, you were told that, okay, this is the way reality is. Okay, we, we figured out there's no such thing as a self. It's just an illusion. Um, you know, there's only particles and they all are deterministic. I mean, but the thing is, <laughs> even your disappointment in this would still just be deterministic or not. Um, but I, I guess... Would, would, would that matter? Would any of these notions of ultimate reality matter to you or to a pragmatist in general? Or would it just be like, okay, it doesn't affect my life. Like my life is not any different than it was yesterday. This information doesn't change anything. Um, but then I think I have uh, another, uh, another motivation, I guess, that's hidden in there too, which is not only that we, that consciousness desires something, but that this desire does something to the world. So it is, it, our desire is what initiates philosophy, initiates science. It starts, it starts this intellectual journey that we're on. 
But this intellectual journey has a goal. It has a teleological aim. And the aim of this desire is to create, uh, well, my interpretation of it, is to create a home for being, to create, to create a structure for being to fully express itself. So I think that this, that consciousness begins in desire and it's oriented or lured on towards the fulfillment of that desire, which is to create a home for being, for consciousness. Uh, and therefore, desire matters because desire is what drives us to build, to create. And the thing that we're creating is this future world that we are driven towards. And therefore, to me, metaphysics is not just like an idle pastime. It's not just like, oh, it's interesting. Okay, are we real? Are we not real? Okay, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really affect my life. But it's interesting to know. So it's not just interesting to know, but I think knowing has an it changes the world i think that in knowing the in knowing metaphysics we are changing the world we have it changes reality because again my view that uh consciousness has as an aspect of itself agency would mean that reality itself is choice dependent it, it's reliant on choice so consciousness co-creates reality and therefore our desires matter because our desires have an effect and obviously we can see this in the in the practical everyday world obviously our desires to you know build a house or find a job or get married obviously affect reality um but i'm i push that down all the way to to ontology and say no fundamental reality itself is transformed by our desires and therefore our desires matter. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah, fundamental reality transformed by our desires. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, of course I could interpret that in a, in a pragmatist way that our desires, I think you're right that desire does change things um, and it certainly does change, I think, what we take to be fundamental. I don't know that it um, makes sense to me to say that it changes what is fundamental in some other way, except that it changes what is fundamental for us. Um, again, I would want to maybe say, re-say what you said in, you know, slightly more concrete words. So philosophers talk about being and things like that, I would maybe say that life wants to be alive. Life wants to keep living. That's part of kind of the living process, at least once life emerges. And I, here I would get, you know, I begin more from this fundamental distinction between non-living and living. And maybe there's ways in which it's not totally fundamental or basic, but, you know, there's, you know, in-between stuff. But um, I begin basically from thinking about the difference between life and non-life. And I do think life is desirous. Life um, kind of begins with purpose, right? The purpose of maintaining the system, maintaining itself. And I do think that life wants to keep living and produce a home in which it can live. It can, and you know, human beings are part of life and we've found new ways to sustain our lives, to make our lives more stable, to make life more stable. I think part of that will also be going to other planets. I think that's part of, will be part of the life process is spreading to other planets because that creates more 
a greater likelihood that life will keep living, right? Um, so I agree, I think, with your basic sentiment. Um, I, again, just want to return it to like these more con concrete concepts of living organisms and and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I was going to well, say something maybe, relevant me... to religion too, but... I, yeah, let me, let me expand the view a little bit. Um, because when we talk about things like consciousness too, or like you said, like being or life, um, you know, we have this, we take for granted what we mean when we say that. Um, and uh, so uh, let me present this view and maybe Tyler, you can also give me your, your feedback as uh, if it's, if it's compatible with uh, your um, panentheism, but it's, it's, it's my idea of the triune ontology, which uh, so normally when you hear the word Trinity, Trinity is understood as three entities being three different entities, but at the same time, one being one entity. Uh, the triune ontology is kind of different in that it takes two things related in such a way that they become a new thing, a new third thing that is neither one thing nor two things. The mystics call this, they use this phrase, not one, not two. It's, it's something else. It's it's not a oneness. It's not monism, and it's not separateness. It's not pluralism. It's kind of connectedness, uh, and this connection between these two things can be seen as a third entity. So this is uh, my understanding of a triune. This is uh, which differs slightly from the traditional interpretation of a trinity. Um, and this triune, to me, this fundamental reality triune, uh, exists as a self and other bound together, becoming a third thing, a third reality. Um, and this is interesting because, uh, David, you mentioned about self coming out of the other. Um, and, uh, well, if we think about consciousness, uh, consciousness includes, or I'm, I'm saying at least, it includes both a self-consciousness and other consciousness. Now, self-consciousness, oh, oh, we take for granted, that means consciousness. What is other consciousness? Well, uh, for example, I, I, I'm throwing this idea out there. I'm not sure if I'm totally married to it yet. But like if you dream, when you dream, your mind creates this world. I call this world other consciousness. The, the, your mind becomes the other. You have a self walking around in the dream, but the dream structure is other consciousness. When people do meditation and they they you know talk about this unification, this consciousness of oneness, I think that is not, I think that's just the other side of consciousness is other consciousness as opposed to self-consciousness. Um, and my idea is that the self is contained in the other, but also contains the other, like the yin-yang symbol. So the other transcends the self, but yet uh, I am a self and you are the other. But from your perspective, you are the self and I am the other. So therefore, we have this like dynamic going on where I am both the self and the other. Uh, I am both containing you as the other, uh, but I'm also contained by you. And uh, therefore, the other becomes the object for the subject of the self. So reality that we see, the trees and plants, whatever, that is other consciousness in relation to self-consciousness, which is us consciousness. 
Um, and this other consciousness provides this potentiality field, this potentiality field out of which, so when people talk about idealism, like Castrop's view is that there's this consciousness and everything in the world is elements or people say thoughts in the mind of God or whatever, but this outcroppings of consciousness, manifestations of consciousness uh, that we call objective reality. Um, and this objective reality is created out of this potentiality field. So I, my position is that consciousness is not just what we call self-consciousness, like I'm conscious. It includes other consciousness. And this other consciousness gives rise to this potentiality field out of which objective things emerge. Now I say objective things because for an idealist, right, everything is mine. So, so it's like everything is objective. But because my view is relational, there's more than one mind, we can have objectivity. Because so I'm subject, I'm subjective. But because you are real, because you exist, you become an object to me, you become objective to me, you push back on me, like you said, if you hold an object, it pushes it, it interacts with you, right? So because you are also real, you push back on me, you become the, the, the objective world to my subjective consciousness. And at the same time, I do this to you, like, so we are both in a feedback loop with each other. So this is my particular view of ultimate reality. Uh, I'm curious to see if, if this is acceptable for Tyler's view, or if it's anathema to the, to the tradition. No, <laughs> and I, also, David, what you think about it as well. Go ahead, Tyler. I think it, it, it certainly is compatible. Um, your Christianity has the, the idea that we exist inside of God, and we are we endure because of God's you know constant willing of creation, and at the same time we have a spark of the divine within us. Um, so there is that kind of yin yang balance that you mentioned, and obviously the, the the Trinity is described in a very similar way, where God the Father and God the Son their relation to each other creates this third entity called the Holy Spirit, and you know, the the relation is so perfect that all three entities are distinct, but also completely unified, um, which is uh, you know, a paradox. But I think at, at the level of infinity and perfection, you know, everything is a paradox. Um, so it is completely compatible in that way. And I guess at the at the same time, I think Christianity is also compatible with pragmatism at least so as it's been described so far for two reasons one is pragmatism focuses on solving problems and and to me solving problems involves like having an accurate view of the problem yeah that's that's the first step so what would be the most true description of every problem in the world and this is kind of what I was talking about before. Like if, if you look at all these problems and solutions and you find some common ground, wouldn't you call that fundamental reality? And you said, oh, that's kind of what logic is. And logic is, is certainly one side of the coin, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a process, not a substance. And I wonder if there might be a substantive thing 
that we could see across a common substantive commonality that we could see across problems as well. And if if there is such a thing, if there is like a, a substantive and procedural commonality, and we call this thing fundamental reality because it helps us solve all these different problems. That then is that seems to be like a metaphysics. And if that metaphysics is Christianity, then it's compatible with pragmatism. And I guess to to argue for why Christianity specifically would fit in there is because if if that metaphysical um, answer is different, so if if it's if a, if it's a materialist answer, if we look at all these commonalities and we say, oh yeah, we do just see atoms, maybe the atoms is the is the substantive part, and the the logic is the procedural part. If that's what we're calling, you know, the, this fundamental reality that we see across all these different problems, um, that's going to give us different answers to how we solve problems. For example, the problem of what, what's our purpose in life, and if if pragmatism doesn't want to address questions of purpose, then like, how do I how do I do what's right and not wrong? Questions like that are going to be different under a materialist worldview than a Christian worldview, where a Christian worldview says. You have this purpose because God gave it to you. You are supposed to do this thing because God said it's good and uh, not this other thing because God said it's bad. There's going to be different answers. So pragmatism would have a stake in figuring out if the common if the commonality to all these different problems could be solved through Christianity or some other metaphysical view. That's why I think it's compatible. Um, and the other thing you said is pragmatism is very focused on what's concrete. And you don't want it to get too abstract because you don't, you can't then see how it how it relates to to concrete problems. But Christianity, as opposed to other theistic religions, has the most concrete answer, which is the best part of Christianity is the incarnation. Um, that's that's from a logical point of view that that is the combining of all these abstract ideas into the real world for the purpose of solving problem, like the, the biggest problem, which is sin. So I guess that's that's why I think Christianity is in this way compatible with both of your guys' views. And Dia, you said something um, earlier that like a lot of these different metaphysical views are perhaps just semantically different, and they do have a lot of um, real co real commonalities. And I think that's true. All right. Very good. Very interesting. Yeah. So I think there are. Definitely similarities and resonances, like you say. Um, that idea you mentioned of the incarnation is really uh, intriguing as well. And um, yeah, because you do see, you know, if you look at the kind of evolution of the idea of God <clears throat> over time, it tended to become more abstract. And some would say there are, you know, sociological um, reasons for that, you know, political reasons for that. Um, but anyway, we don't need to get, get into all of that. But it's interesting that you, then you have this idea of, you know, God coming into this concrete form. You get this in other religions too. Um, but yeah, that's a int really intriguing part of Christianity. Um, I think pragmatists would tend to be uncomfortable with certain ethical aspects of religion insofar as there's um, 
insofar as rules are backed up by the authority of God, I think that would make many um, pragmatists uncomfortable because I think there are other ways to, I mean, I do think probably that belief in God seems to be getting less. I don't know. There's contra, you know, the evidence about this is controversial. Um, and of course it depends on what you mean by God and all of that kind of thing, but it seems like belief in the kind of God that could authorize laws about what to do or not do seems to be getting less. And then the pragmatist would want to say, well, where else can we turn for that kind of um, foundation for ethical behavior. I don't really want to get too much into that because I also want to <laughs> return to what Daniel um, was talking about. But I think, yeah, I think there are a lot of interesting questions to talk about in the relation between pragmatism and religion as a kind of ethical institution and social institution and religious beliefs and stories and all of that. So yeah, there's a lot to say about that. Um, but I do want to get back to what Daniel mentioned, and then we should probably figure out a way to, to finish. Um, but yeah, Daniel said a lot of interesting things. Um, I liked the, so it's kind of going back to relations. I think relations have been maybe um, an undercurrent of what we've been talking about and explicit at many points. And Daniel brought them to kind of into the foreground again the relation between self and other and this, yeah, how the self presupposes other, other presupposes self. And I think you see that in interesting ways at many different levels. I'll maybe just, yeah, without being too, trying to, trying not to be too long-winded about it, I'll mention two things that were just on my mind recently. So again, I've um, been looking into the work of the quantum physicist, uh, quantum physicist Carlo Rovelli, who I think is very compatible with how a pragmatist might view quantum mechanics, quantum physics. And one of the points, one of the things, he, so he's famous for uh, the, rel the relational interpretation of quantum mechanics. And the basic idea, without getting super technical, which I'm not qualified to do, but the basic idea is that the properties of a system emerge through interaction with other systems. So this is the way that he solves or dissolves or however you want to put it, the measurement problem is that it's not a problem involving consciousness as such, although there may be a conscious observer doing measuring, but there doesn't need to be. But anytime you have systems interacting with each other, that is where the particular, then that's where you actually get the particular values for this or that, the particular values for this or that variable that you might want to know about. And this is also interesting and related, you could relate this in interesting ways to the work of George Herbert Mead, but the idea of there needing to be a relationship, I think at the bottom in order to make things what they are, I think is very appealing and you see in many different ways. Just one other thing that I'll try to briefly mention, um, an amusing example from John Dewey, he talks about, he gives this idea, he's talking more about a, the epistemological problem, but you could also think about it in terms of ontology. He talks about, um, you know, observing this situation or being in this situation where only one relationship exists. 
So imagine this situation where only one relation exists, the relationship between eater and food. So those are the only two things in the universe, eaters and food. So you could look at this situation in two different ways. You could look at it as the eater is fundamental, right? And then because eaters exist, then food necessarily exists. Or you could look at, look at it in the reverse way, that food is fundamental, and because food exists, therefore there are eaters. So you could describe the situation in either way, eaters eating food or food being eaten. But you're actually talking, you have the same actual thing, right? The same integral situation, but you can look at it in these two different ways. And if you think food is fundamental, you're a materialist, right? Let's say, so a foodist, a materialist. If you think the eater is fundamental reality, then you've got the idealist side, you're an eaterist or whatever, an idealist. So it's two different ways, different ways of describing the same situation, but of course it's the same integral thing, right? You need both of those things for each one to exist. You need food for eaters to exist. You know, no food doesn't exist without eaters. Eaters can't exist without food. It's kind of this, again, yin-yang sort of situation. So just a little bit of a silly example to nice. <laughs> throw in there. Uh, for, uh, for like a last final point, I would like to, to mention this. Uh, what, what I find interesting for idealism, like Kastrup's, his dissociate alters or, or panentheism, uh, the question is, what is the relationship between us and the big, uh, and the big, whatever the big consciousness is? So, like I, I like this, I like the, the the phrase you have here about the eaters and the food, because I that's that's my view is is unifying the both of those sides into a, and that's why I call it trainal because it's like getting both the eater and the food and the relationship in a holistic package. And calling it this kind of ontology, um, but my question is: How do we get from that, let's say, primordial reality, primordial reality of the eater and the food, and our reality of human beings? What is our relationship to this primordial reality? Um, for so for different idealist perspectives. In general, they have the idea of there's this ultimate reality, this ultimate consciousness, like the sun, and then we have to raise the sun. So whatever we are is is less than the fundamental. Like the ray of the sun is less than the sun itself. It's mm -hmm. it's not an equal relationship. Um, but for the triune view, my particular view at least, uh, Again, this, this triune has a kind of paradoxical ontology or like the yin-yang symbol. Um, and, and therefore, at the same time, I'm the self and you are the other. You are also the self and I am the other. Um, and if we, if we take this view and apply it to our relationship between us, whatever we are, and ultimate reality, whatever it is, uh, I, my perspective is that this view itself is also a triune relationship. It's also in a, in this similar kind of relationship. And even if we, let's, let's say, let's say we are offspring of this ultimate reality. Um, we are fundamental in the sense that we are the same thing 
as being you know a child and a, fa a father. Um, but we are also fundamental in that, like you said, being you mentioned before about the self being birthed out of the other. Um, this ultimate reality birthing us, we become the self that gives rise to the other or the other way around. We are become the other that gives rise to self. Um, we, we retroactively give rise to the thing that creates us because in order to have a self, you need to have the other. I mean, the self comes into existence because of the other or the other comes into existence because of the self. So in the, uh, the arrival of self consciousness, other consciousness comes into being or vice versa. Um, and this of course would, would uh, differ from a traditional Christian interpretation at least. Um, but at the same time, uh, interestingly in the Christian tradition, you have, you have man, not man, well, woman, you have human birthing God. You have God coming from human. Um, and then you have the concept of God binding itself to humanity, like a husband binding itself to a wife. And the biblical concept of husband and wife is the two become one. Obviously, so my interpretation of this two become one is the same thing in this mystical, not one, not two. Obviously, a husband and wife don't physically become one, but they become a triune one. They become a new entity that's not individual and it's not, it's not oneness and it's not separateness. It's a new entity. Um, and therefore I think, uh, so this is my particular view. I think that whatever fundamental reality is, it's in a triune relationship with us. And therefore we are co-creators. We are fundamental reality along with this fundamental reality. And uh, Tyler, do you have uh, some push back on that? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I would want I would want to, uh, I guess, make it more specific and orthodox. But um, you know, I, I don't see I don't see any logical problems with that. I, I think I do accept that as as an abstract explanation of a lot of these relations we find in Christianity. And David, what would be the, I guess I, a lot of the stuff we're talking about is, is something that maybe pragmatists wouldn't, or would, would want to at least make it more concrete, but it, I don't know if it, does it, does it resonate at all with a pragmatist, this idea of fundamental reality? I mean, I, I know that you like the idea of relations, um, but do you... I guess it comes down to, do you think that we are related, that we are related to something that's fundamental? We have some kind of relationship with the fundamental. Yeah, that's a, I think is a question that can be taken in different ways. And I'm not sure that my, that I would be able to take it in the same way as you. Um, Cause I think you're, well, I don't know exactly well, well maybe like another way to explain it is like uh so Kant's uh phenomenal and nominal world hmm. right so for him we we have a relationship with the phenomenal 
but perhaps we don't have a relationship with the nominal world that's kind of like out of our grasp. Obviously, my view is that, no, we are directly in relationship with the nominal, with the fundamental. Would a pragmatist mm -hmm. be more like on the Kantian side would be like, okay, well, whatever ultimate reality is or isn't, we don't have access to it or, or we just... Well, again, I would... So it's not that we don't have a relation to the noumenal, but you would need to make it something like what I said before, as if you want to, you could refer to the noumenal, for example, as what a thing is from an infinite, infinite number of perspectives. And that's something we could have a relationship with as an ideal, as something that guides our behavior. So if you want to take the thing in itself, the Kantian noumenal as a kind of ideal that guides you to refine your concepts more and more, to refine your methodology for solving problems more and more, to get to a more broadly or universally useful set of tools. I think that's fine, but I'm not sure that gives you what you would want. I think you're trying to find more of a ground for meaning. And for me, the ground of meaning is not exactly a fundamental thing. I mean, I think meaning is fundamental for people, but I think the ground of meaning is more in society, in our social relationships, not in our relationship to some um, level of reality that is, um, I don't know, below, the level of social interaction or that, you know, pervades everything else. I think meaning is more a matter of human society. So I think those are different ways to look at fundamentals. So I think meaning is fundamental for people, but I think, you know, this more abstract idea of what, it, of the fundamental is more like a guiding principle for how we, um, you know, manage our behavior in relation to solving problems and stuff like that. Yeah, it's interesting that you like, I, I agree that, uh, like at the social level or the level of, of humanity, you can, you can replicate any of these models, and then apply it to, you know, consciousness being birthed. I mean, like your parents give birth to you, and then you become, first, you are kind of like, a, you don't have a self, you don't have a self consciousness. And then the society, your parents, you know, imprint, this onto you and you are birthed into self-awareness. Um, so you can, yeah, have different levels of analysis. Um, I, I guess, obviously, as because I have an, a fun, you know, an ontology, uh, I would want these, the same pattern to be replicated all the way down to the bottom. And therefore, like, I, I like, you know, the measurement problem in quantum physics, you know, it, what well, the one interpretation is that consciousness has a relationship with the fundamental and therefore we, you know, affect the measurement. Um, and then your example where it could not, couldn't, it might not just be consciousness, it could be consciousness, but it could be anything else interacts with the system. Um, right. I would be okay with that view, as long as consciousness also is part of the fundamental. Um, yeah, like if, it, if, I, if we find out one day that actually, you know, consciousness is just emergent and everything I'm talking about is only applicable on the social level, like the human world level, but doesn't doesn't concur all the way down to fundamental reality. 
yeah, I still would have a problem with that because I would want it to go, you know, to be fundamental. But I do agree that it would also apply in a in a practical everyday world. The same concepts would 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 work. So then, do you? <clears throat> so if we just think about this in terms of kind of, and maybe you've mentioned this already, but we've uh, covered a lot of ground and uh, should think about finishing up. But do you see this? So do you see this as kind of an alternative or extension of dualism where you have, um, I mean, dualism, you could think of, I don't know if they would want to think about in terms of self and other exactly, but you could think of it maybe in terms of like mind and the thing known by mind, kind of otherness, matter, say, but then you also need to account for the actual relationship. So it's not just that there's two fundamental things, but if there are two fundamental things, then you also have to account for the relation. Is that a way of saying? Yeah, so I mean, see, it wouldn't wouldn't neatly go into any category because it, it, it's it's obviously idealistic in that consciousness is fundamental, it, uh, you know, but it's also relational in that relations are fundamental. Um, it's also like process ontology, where it's not just a static entity. It's a movement. It's a it's activity going on. Um, and the, the physical, the materialism is the hardest one to incorporate, but in the other creating this, this potentiality field, it, the other becomes objective to the self. And I think that's the, basically the same thing as materialism, whatever is materialism is just that, which is you know, like you mentioned that, which, uh, reacts to me or that which um hits against resists. my boundaries resists okay yeah that which resists so uh in that sense it's it would it, it could incorporate a materialist view as well the other is that which resists to me but yeah it doesn't it doesn't neatly fall into any category therefore i have my own category yeah 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 <laughs> all right all sounds right. Uh, it was great having this discussion we covered a lot of ground. Definitely, yeah. Any uh, final words? I think there's um, a lot here that we could continue. Uh, we covered, yeah, many kind of diverse things, and it might be good maybe to focus more on like one or two sometime in the future, although there are other topics I think that we want to talk about as well. But yeah, hopefully we'll maybe come back to um, these perspectives in the future, maybe focus maybe more in depth on one of them and what we think we like about it or don't like about it and all of that. Um, but yeah, any other final words? Oh, that sounds great. I'd like to say thank you for hosting this talk and inviting me to participate. Yeah. Yeah. It was great meeting you. Glad to have you aboard for this. Yeah. Really interesting uh, conversation. So uh, yeah, why don't we all stop the recording here? Um, so yeah, thanks for, thanks to the listeners for listening as well. Thanks for joining us. Have a good day. Can't hit the button. <laughs>